morning. If you would remain standing with me for the reading of God's word. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Ben Wishell. I'm one of the serve as an elder here. Um, I'm going to be reading from Psalm 127. If you're using one of those uh, blue Bibles in the pew, it's uh, page 298. Page 298, Psalm 127. A Song of Ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds this house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I am also introducing our speaker this morning, uh, Mr. David Parker. Um, David is a, a friend. Uh, when we first moved here in 2017, um, we landed downtown Cornerstone was the church that we started attending in 2017. Um, and David is a co, uh, co-founder, co-planter of DCC um, 13 years ago. And they are, uh, we were talking this morning, their uh, lead pastor is going on his uh, second sabbatical now in the life of DCC this summer. So it was exciting to see how that, how that church has grown. Um, David has served faithfully there for 13 years. Uh, he and his wife, Michelle, have been married for over two decades. Uh, they have two daughters, Eliana and Naomi. Um, and yeah, and uh, just a couple, couple stories. So David is, is someone, he actually did our membership interview when we were, uh, Mallory and I were at DCC and had the opportunity to get to know him a little bit in that conversation. And um, he has a, a, a great mix of, of love and care and compassion and also, but there's also like a hard line of like, this is truth and this is not. And I remember that. That's one of the things I remember distinctly from that conversation was just as we were talking, hearing his, his commitment to um, loving and compassionate, but also like, no, these, these are hard truths and these, these are real things. And um, to faithfully serve in that manner as a pastor in Seattle for, for 13 plus years is not an easy thing to do. Um, the Lord has blessed his ministry. He's, he's blessed downtown Cornerstone. And um, I'm super excited for him to come and bless us this morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, thanks for Ben for the introduction. And uh, truly is a privilege to uh, not only see some familiar faces this morning, but uh, be able to bring the word of God to bear uh, as a church. And as our elders, we've been praying for you guys, praying that the Lord would give you wisdom and lead you uh, in and through this season uh, in every way so that Icon Church could be a place where more disciples are made and the gospel goes forth from here. And so uh, we are praying to those ends. And uh, although I am missing being with our church family this morning, uh, I am super excited to be uh, with you and kind of the privilege to be able to open up the Word of God uh, with you all together today. So thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks for the introduction and uh, praying that the Lord would be over our time. So uh, if you would take your Bible, turn to Psalm 127. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one at the end of the pew. Or if you don't want to be distracted with your phone, that's also legitimate too as well. Uh, and as you're turning there, I just want to set the stage a little bit for our time together. And so if you are new to the Psalms, there are 150 Psalms. Uh, and actually broken up into uh, different subsections and different types. Uh, and this psalm, in particular, Psalm 127, is what is called a psalm of ascent. 
Uh, and the Psalm of Ascents uh, were basically comprised of about 15 psalms that were used by the Jewish people uh, in, and were sung for many festivals. Uh, in particular, they would sing a lot of these songs on their way back to Jerusalem for the yearly festivals. And so Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 uh, were grouped together in what are called the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, and as we're uh, going to look at today, even thousands of years later, these psalms are still immensely practical for us. Uh, they are food for the soul uh, and a countercultural anchor that reminds us of uh, not only who we are, but where our ultimate hope lies. And so today I want to dive into Psalm 127. And there's a little disagreement on some scholars about who wrote this psalm, but most uh, attribute it to Solomon. And it shouldn't surprise us. First Kings tells us that uh, not only did Solomon write 3,000 proverbs, but over 1,000 songs. All right, that's quite a songwriter resume. Uh, and so we, I promise we're not going to sing this psalm today, uh, but I can't honestly wait for the day where we get to hear a lot of these psalms that are sung uh, in, in eternity, Lord willing. But uh, this psalm is so helpful for us today because it gives, gets to the heart of really uh, some of the biggest areas of our life that often demand the most attention in our lives, uh, that is our work and our family. And so in many respects, we have a, a culture that maybe lauds and celebrates and takes pride in everything that we do with work and career and uh, even as the ultimate end to building our lives. Uh, well, maybe at the same time, ignoring or marginalizing or forsaking the beauty and the gift that a family and even children are uh, to our, our lives and our culture. Uh, or maybe on the flip side, depending on the circles that you grew up in, maybe some of us are tempted to idolize relationships or idolize family to the neglect of our worship with God. And so uh, it's no accident that the psalmist puts both these issues of, of work and family to get together uh, and gives us instruction of how we should think about all that we put our hands to, our lives, our work, our church, our families, uh, and ultimately uh, the gospel. So uh, whether you're here this morning and maybe at the pinnacle of your life or career and feel like things are going well, or maybe you're just you're weary uh, from the weight of the world on your soul, uh, it's my hope and prayer that all of us would just take comfort and be reminded afresh. Uh, and it's ultimately the Lord who is building our home and our house and is sovereign over every square inch of our lives. So uh, I want to read this psalm again, slow down a little bit, and we're going to pray and ask the Lord to meet us this morning. Uh, I'm using the ESV translation, and uh, the psalmist says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate." Father, thanks for this morning. Thank you that your mercies are new every day. Thank you for the breath in our lungs. Thank you for beating hearts. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning to see you afresh. I'd take back the distractions or things that might get in the way with us just being with you today. I pray that you would transform us <clears throat> into a people who care more about what you have to say than what we have to say. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you and that would allow all of us to grow in your grace. Father, please give us humble hearts ready to receive your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we start our time, I want to break this passage into five parts that we'll look at today. Uh, first, we're going to look at verse 1, the sovereignty of God in all of our endeavors. Uh, second, we're going to look at the anxious toil of prideful work. Uh, third, I want to look at verse, the second half of verse 2. 
uh, looking at the gift of rest. Uh, and fourth, we're going to see God's familial blessing uh, in three through five, and then we'll close looking at the present reality of God's grace in our lives. And so uh, first, the sovereignty of God in all of our endeavors. The psalmist says, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, in the original language, these two statements are grammatically identical, with one focusing on the house or the home front, uh, and the other focusing on the city or protection of it or security of it. So uh, let's first look at this house aspect. What is a house? Uh, What does Solomon mean that you could build a house in vain? Uh, The word used here for house could mean the actual building of a home that someone lives in. But when it's used in this way, it's often broader than that. It includes this idea of family or dynasty or kingdom. Uh, For example, God told David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would build him a house. Now, God wasn't talking about a physical house, but a family, a a lineage in whom the Savior actually would one day descend from. And so I think this meaning... Uh, is especially drawn out in this passage since the following verses directly relate to raising a family. Uh, But you could also extend this meaning to so many areas in life. Uh, Some of us might be in grade school, right, high school or college or grad school or ministry or seminary, right, building your house in this season, maybe laying a fountain of education where you're growing in understanding and knowledge. Some of you maybe are just starting building out your careers and beginning to add bricks of experience and increase knowledge and expertise, Some of you are maybe pursuing relationships that you hope will one day lead to a flourishing family. Some of you might be in the middle of trying to buy a home or build up savings to buy a home. And some of you might be desirous of having children or getting things in order to help facilitate that. Some of you might be building into your children or grandchildren. Many of, even in the church, many of you are members and leaders of the church and are thinking through how to best love and feed and care for and see Icon Church flourish into all that God wants her to be, right? So I think there could be a, a thousand ways that we could be building our proverbial houses, if you will. So the psalmist is saying that unless the Lord is at work in all our endeavors, right, no matter what activities we do in building our homes, it's ultimately in vain if it's apart from him. And that word vain literally means nothingness, right? It's empty or it's worthless, For example, unless the Lord gives understanding, all of our studying is in vain. Unless the Lord provides a job, all of our resume submitting or applications or interviews are in vain. Unless the Lord changes the hearts of our kids, right, all of our parenting is in vain. And the list goes on and on. Now, you might object and say, well, David, I I know plenty of people who are succeeding in life who don't know or worship the Lord. Well, sure, on one hand, maybe, right, there's... Uh, you can have a great family, they have a great family, or built a successful business. Uh, So in one aspect, all of mankind can be a recipient of God's common grace, right? Because we know this, God tells us in Matthew 5, 45, that the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. But I think what the psalmist is getting at here is not uh, the worldly success that we often measure life by, but he's talking about the sovereign hand of the grace of God that produces eternal fruit. Even Jesus asked a rhetorical question along these lines in Mark 8, 36, when he said this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? The answer, nothing, nothing. We can't take with us anything with us when we die. So unless the Lord is building our house of our lives and according to his purposes and his sovereign plan, it doesn't matter if we have the best plans or business or church in the world. If it's not founded in and established by the Lord, it does not matter. So the important, friends, it's important for us to remember, we don't ultimately measure success by God's material blessing. No, we measure success by our humble dependence on the Lord. Our humble dependence on the Lord. On the last day of our lives, on our deathbed, what is going to matter to us? 
as well our lives were lived with eternity in mind. Right? None of us are going to care about whether we sent one more email, right, or made one more proposal. No. We're going to stand before the Lord and give an account of what were we living for that lasted for eternity. Right? So unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. The writer goes on and says, unless the Lord watches over the city, those who watch over it do so in vain. Now, because we live in a time in our country where we're relatively safe, right, we're not under attack right now, this meeting might be a little elusive to us uh, if you live in America. But if you spend any time over in Europe or Asia, uh, you know there are many walled cities. Uh, because in times of war, right, there was always a chance that you could be attacked at any moment. So they built walled cities for a reason. And especially during those times, like, there'd be a good portion of a city's inhabitants that were focused on protecting the city, right, keeping watch over the city. But what happened, right? And even what we see in Scripture, if you've read anything like the Old Testament, you know of cities like Jericho that literally had thousands of watchmen guarding the city. But what happened in an instant, right? God took down the walls. Why? Because the sovereign hand of the Lord, right, was decisive in those moments. So while the psalmist's use of house, if you will, in the first part of the verse is primarily individual or family-oriented, the city here is more community-focused. Now, clearly, we don't have walled cities in our context, but we do have lots of circles of watching and keeping that we do. So, for instance, maybe you're a pastor, a community leader, or a civic leader, or president of an organization, Maybe you're, maybe you're a board member or an officer or a judge, right? You name it. There could be lots of ways that we are involved and invested with helping keep and watch and protect. And so uh, I think the same is true in all these endeavors, right? There can be lots of ways that we can be about the business of keeping and watching over a community of people. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Uh, friends, we could have the best security systems, right? processes and people and board of directors and discipleship curriculum or pastoral search committee, right? Whatever it is. But the psalmist says that unless we recognize the sovereign hand of the Lord is actively behind keeping and sustaining all of our endeavors, right? It's foolishness to think that any of our keeping will trump God's plans. I love Proverbs 9.10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, why do anything, right? If God is sovereign and he's in control, he's just going to sovereignly do what he wants, right? You could have a fatalistic attitude toward that, but uh, he is sovereign, friends, but don't forget that he uses means, right? God uses means, right? This verse doesn't say that we shouldn't work on building or we shouldn't watch over things. No, in fact, he's saying that all of our life, in essence, is one of building and keeping. That's why we go to school. That's why we apply for jobs. That's why... We pray for each other and teach and parent our kids and even put locks on our homes and our cars. Right? Right? God isn't telling us to be idle or foolish. Right? In fact, we're created uh, in God's image to work. Right? Remember what God told Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? To do what? Work it and keep it. Right? Build and protect. See the similarity? So he's warning the Israelites and us that as we work, though, to not be ignorant that God is ultimately sovereign over all of our endeavors. And then it's actually foolish or arrogant to think that any of our lives and what we're doing is somehow disconnected from the sovereign hand of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8.18, convicting verse here, it says, the Lord says this to us, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. 1 Samuel 2.7, the Lord makes poor and rich, he brings low and he also exalts. Exodus 35, 30 through 32. See, the Lord has called by name Belezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship. For what? 
to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze. The Lord filled him with skill. So friends, I want to remind us today, right, that it's ultimately the Lord who not only empowers and equips us, but is also sovereign and in control over all of life. Now, depending on what season that you're in, you may not feel like that God is not active or maybe he's not building or not helping build or not keeping watch over, right? We might question why is God seemingly allowing things to happen and why is he allowing wickedness to prosper, right? We might be tempted to believe that somehow God is not for us, that maybe he's gone on vacation or somehow disconnected. But friends, we have to remember that we don't see the whole picture. We don't, right? We don't see God's grand narrative that stretches over thousands of years, And although it might seem like God is allowing wickedness to prosper or maybe slow to act, we can rest in God's promises to us that he's working all things out for the good of those that love him. That he's using even pain and suffering and challenges and everything in between to form us into who he wants us to be. How do we know this? God's given us countless examples in scripture of God working behind the scenes in chaos. Job and Joseph, and ultimately we see pointing even in the New Testament the climax and the death of Christ. Think about this, friends. If God could use the greatest atrocity known to man, the killing of God, of Jesus, to accomplish the greatest good that the world has ever known, how much more can we surrender the daily things in our lives to him? And this should give us great comfort for a couple reasons. First, that even if we don't have the best plans, humanly speaking, if God is in it, he will allow it to succeed. Isn't that a great comfort? And second, it also means that we don't have to fear failure. Right? If, if God is ultimately building our lives and in and through our work and keeping watch over all things, right, we could have the best family plan or the best business plan or even the best sermon or ministry or in church. And if God's decide he has something better in mind, he's going to work that out according to his purposes. Right? So it should allow us to rest. And so friends, just because a, fan, a plan fails does not mean that God has failed or we are a failure. It might and often means that God is doing something beautiful in the midst of it. And although we may not see it right now, one day we will be able to look back on our lives and say, ah, that's what God is doing, right? Or that's how God used that season, right? Some of us that are older, we might be able to look back already and see the ways that God is at work and has been at work in hard seasons and what he did in and through us. And God is still going to do and use those things in our life. So a couple questions for us. Whether you're in school or you're single or you're married or rearing kids or retired, Does your planning or building first start with asking for his direction, right? For his leading, for his guiding? Or do you find yourself more often maybe just bringing God along for the ride, right? Asking him to bless your plans. How's your prayer life when it comes to building and keeping? Do you find yourself often just submitting yourself and your plans before the Lord, asking for his wisdom and grace before making plans or decisions? Friends, I pray, myself included, right, that we would continue to remember that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Second here, let's look at the anxious toil of prideful work. Verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So what is the psalmist saying here? Well, first we should probably ask, is it wrong to work hard? Clearly, there's lots of warnings in Scripture about those who do not work. In fact, Solomon also wrote in Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, Go to the ant, or sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. 
How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep and a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and a poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So we know, even from passages like this, the psalmist is not saying that it's, it's wrong to work hard or that hard work won't be required sometimes. There may be seasons where long hours are required. Right? Whether you're a new parent or you're a resident doctor or a farmer during harvest, you, you know these kings. Right? There, there are seasons that just require long hours. But I believe what the psalmist is trying to show us here is that there's a way that we work that acknowledges God's sovereignty and our humanity. Right? There's a way that we can work that acknowledges God's sovereignty and our humanity. He says, right, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. So if it's not wrong to work hard, what is he talking about? What is this anxious toil here? Well, some other translates, uh, translations translate anxious toil as painful labors or eating the bread of sorrow. Uh, here, if you bring all these words together, here's what I think is a really helpful definition that encapsulates this verse and the preceding verse. Uh, here's my definition. Anxious toil is a prideful way of working that ignores God's sovereignty and seeks the self-provision and self-protection of our lives apart from the grace of God. And that's a lengthy one. Let me say it again. Anxious toil is a prideful way of working that ignores God's sovereignty and seeks self-provision and self-protection apart from the grace of God. So what do I mean by that? Well, you and I are tempted daily to believe it's all up to us, aren't we? That everything is riding on us. We're, we're tempted to maybe not trust and believe in God, that he is our perfect father, that he is in control, and that he's working all things out for the good of those that love him. And so the byproduct of that distrust in God and his provision and protection can be one then of self-provision and self-protection, where we believe that it's all up to us and everything rises and falls then on our performance. So for example, if I don't believe that it is God who is ultimately the one giving me a job and will provide for me, I may be tempted to take the 40-hour job that I was hired for and turn it into an 80 or 100-hour job, right? At the expense of my health and my family and church and community and friends. Or if I don't believe that God's grace, and my, uh, God's grace and my faithful, patient parenting will be enough, I might be tempted to get angry and feel helpless and lash out at my kids when they're misbehaving, right, when I don't want them to. Or if I don't believe that it's God who is the one who ultimately protecting me, I maybe will stay awake at night fretting and worrying about what others think of me or maybe past mistakes I've made or worrying about what is due the next day that I have no control over. Or if I don't, believe that God will provide for my needs, I might be able to tempt, be tempted to look for provision in material things and get into debt doing so. I think I could go on and on of examples that you and I would probably ring true, read true of overworking or overparenting or overindulging or overspending or overcommitting. I think there's lots of ways, especially in our day and age of the internet, right, where we can be constantly connected, that we can eat the bread of anxious toil. Now, again, I'm not saying there's not seasons that aren't going to be hard, but what I'm saying is that so often, instead of accepting our limitations in those hard seasons, we fight harder against them. And often at the expense of our health and relationships and church and family. I know this has been true in my life. Uh, in essence, right, if we're honest, we would never say this out loud, but we're trying to be God. And so we're often not just struggling with working too much or people-pleasing or feeling inadequate. No, we struggle because deep down we want to be God. We want to be omniscient. We want to be omnipresent. We want to be omnipotent. But friends, the free news that God offers us in and through the gospel is that he's not bound by our limitations. He's not. If we're honest, much of our anxiety in our life comes from spending an inordinate amount of time just dwelling on our limitations or our past mistakes or failures or, or worrying about the future. 
right? What's going to happen with that interview or a family situation or legal proceeding or test results or fill in the blank, right? Anxious toil. As a recovering anxious toiler myself, right, this kind of thinking and believing can lead to life of workaholism and anxiety and lack of sleep and depression and acid reflux and so much more. Right? Those things have all been true in my life in the past as well. And still, at times, I can struggle because in the end, right, the disconnect is I'm not believing and not letting God be God in my life, that he is for us and that we are in his sovereign hand. Maybe a good conversation you can have over lunch today with your family or other friends, right? So think about all the limitations that God has given us as human beings, right? He created us with those limitations, right? Why didn't he make us with those limits? Why can't we be everything, be everywhere? Why can't we do everything? Why are we not in control? We need to eat and we need to sleep, which leads us to the end of verse two, third point this morning, the gift of rest. He says, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So there's two things I want to pull out of the end of this verse. Love of God and the gift of sleep. Just a quick parenthetical note here. If you have the NASB translation, the Bible translators chose to add a couple of articles that you'll see in italics, which they translated that he gives to his beloved even in his sleep, which changes the meaning slightly. And I think both can, both can be true, uh, that God not only gives sleep, but he also gives to us even in our sleep, meaning as we do nothing while we sleep, God is the one still working in our lives, right? He's keeping our heart beating. He's keeping lungs in our breath. Right, keeping the world spinning. So in one sense, that is true. Uh, but I would agree with how the ESV has translated this verse that connects the giver of sleep uh, and the gift of sleep to the gift giver himself. So he says, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So first we see that, in one, uh, that the first antidote to our anxious toiling is a reminder that we are loved. The first antidote to our anxious toiling is a reminder that we are loved. Love this, Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Friends, do you believe that your father, heavenly father, knows what you need and he's happy to give it to you? He's not withholding, right? And secondly, one of the most tangible ways he loves us every day and that we experience his grace is in, through, and by the gift of sleep. Now, if we're honest, many of us may not see sleep as a gift, right? Maybe more of a necessary requirement for life and or a barrier to getting more stuff done. Uh, it's, one, and it's one thing that we're all tempted to maybe cut short on in our attempts to build our families and to keep watch over our lives, isn't it? But I think there's a reason that God created us with a need for sleep. Uh, so rest isn't a barrier, friends, to getting more stuff done. Right? It's first an acknowledgement that we are not God. In David Murray's book, Reset, which I would highly recommend to you if you feel like your life is a little out of control and you need to push the proverbial reset button, he says this about sleep, quote, By sleeping, we are relinquishing control and reminding ourselves, at least for a few hours, that God actually doesn't need us. When we close our eyes each night, we are saying... I don't run the world or the church or even my own little life. Even the president has to get into his pajamas every night, effectively, even if unwillingly, confessing that God doesn't need him, unquote. I love that, right? So God and the psalmist is inviting us to remember that sleep is a gift and that more that we know just how sovereign God is, the more that we're going to be able to receive that sleep as a gift from God that he offers us every day. 
Now, I'm not talking about like the I'm barely able to function and angry without my coffee in the morning kind of sleep, right? Uh, but getting the sleep that our body needs, right? For 90% of us in this room, that is like seven to nine hours of sleep, all right? Uh, and several years ago, I did quite actually a bit of reading uh, on how sleep affects pretty much every physical and mental component of our lives. Uh, I think most of us maybe are keenly aware of the lack of sleep does physically to us, but often we don't think of what the lack of sleep does spiritually to us. Don Carson writes the following quote that I read years back that I thought was just really helpful that I was convicted on. He says this, if you are among those who become nasty and cynical or even full of doubt when you are missing your sleep, you are morally obligated to try and get the sleep you need. We are whole complicated beings. Our physical existence is tied to our spiritual well-being, to our mental outlook, to our relationships with others, including our relationship with God. Sometimes the godliest, sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is to get a good night's sleep. Not pray all night, but sleep. I'm certainly not denying that there may be a place for praying all night. I'm merely insisting that in the normal course of things, spiritual discipline obligates you to get the sleep your body needs, unquote. Friends, we can work hard, right? But knowing that our jobs and our families and our lives are ultimately about how hard we work should allow us to sleep and rest hard as well. Practically, for most of us, that mean, like me, we will not get our to-do list done every day. We won't. There will always be more things to do. There might be still be a presentation or exam that could just use a little more prep or a little more studying for. There might be toys left on the floor or more laundry to be done or more bills to be paid or more vacation to be planned or more sermon prep to be done. But the act of us going to bed when we are tired and so we can get the sleep we need is a tangible declaration that our trust is in the Lord. And contrary to what we might think or feel in that moment, I think it's entirely possible that God might even bless uh, that tangible declaration of trust more with fruit than we thought when it might have been possible if we had just stayed up and kept working. There's been times like this where this has been totally true, where I have felt inadequate, unprepared, and the Lord has showed up many times uh, because I've chosen to go to bed. So often for me, if, if it's anything like you, it takes me a while to wind down. So if I'm working late on a screen to right before I go to bed, it's just frankly hard to turn my brain off. Right? So, but the more that I remember that God is God and I am not, allows me even to stop working early enough in the evening to allow my brain to cool down and wire and just get the sleep I need. So friends, let me just ask you, how are your sleeping habits or even pre-sleep habits? Right? What is the amount of sleep or the lack of sleep you're getting? Maybe believe, reveal about what you believe about God. Now, I know there's probably a whole host of side topics and objections when it comes to sleeping disorders and what to do if you have trouble falling asleep that we don't have time to cover. But I think the thrust of this passage and the Lord's desire for us is that we would know, friends, that he has everything in his hands. And therefore, we can safely and confidently place ourselves in his hands and rest. And rest. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Fourth and lastly, we see God's blessing not just in the gift of sleep, but in the gift of children. The writer goes on. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Uh, here the, the psalmist is clearly connecting the building of a home with the building of a family. Uh, the word heritage here literally means the gift of an inheritance. Uh, so putting this together with the reward language all points to the fact that children are gifts directly from God. Uh, they aren't just byproducts of fertilized eggs. They're gifts from the gracious hand of the Lord. And it's helpful to remember that although we might feel like we're the ones planning for our family and doing all the work, and it's helpful to remember that children are ultimately a gift from the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
Now, there may be many of you here this morning that are not in the season or place of having kids. Maybe you're even struggling with infertility and wondering, well, how do I even take this verse to heart in light of my situation? I would offer you three things. First, just because God gives a type of gift to one person or family and not to you does not mean his love is any less sure. We know that since children are ultimately a gift of God's grace, uh, this verse is a good reminder that God gives to each of us differently in different seasons for the building up of his church and the glory of God. And that's true whether you're single or you're married or w- with kids. So the question for all of us really becomes, right, how can I use this season of life that I am in now for the glory of God? Right? That doesn't mean desiring a family is a bad thing or that we can't set goals and pray for our desires but it does mean that we should, each of us, embrace the season of life that God has given us right now. So please, friends, don't believe the lie that God somehow, or that somehow life doesn't start until a certain season of life. Right? No, that is not true. God wants to use every season of life uh, to glorify and enjoy him. Uh, secondly, we have to acknowledge and remember that the Lord is the one who is ultimately building our home, our family. Since we know that his plans and purposes are always good and he has the eternal perspective in mind, we can confidently place our trust in him that he knows what's best, even if we can't see the full story now. He knows. He sees it all. And third, we have to remember that we live in a broken, fallen world. And there are real effects of the fall and real effects of sin on our bodies. For example, my wife and I struggled through years of infertility. That didn't mean that that pain was any less real or that God is less God. But it did mean he had other plans for us and our family outside of having natural kids. And both my wife and I will tell you that the story that he's written and continues to write in our lives, even through adoption, is absolutely beautiful. So, Psalmist goes on. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Psalmist is basically acknowledging and echoing the blessing that the Lord gave in Genesis 1.28 to fill the earth and subdue it. Right? He's saying... Children are a gift, right? They'll not only be a gift and protection to you, but as they grow older, that will also be true. And that's why he uses this metaphor of arrows in the hand of a warrior. Those arrows, those kids will eventually be shot out of the home as tools to build God's kingdom. Now, our culture in many respects doesn't view children as gifts to be stewarded to the glory of God. We unfortunately abort them. We marginalize them. We see that maybe sometimes it's an inconvenient necessity. Specifically, too, we can even elevate careers and work and personal autonomy above particular gifts and blessings that comes from God. Or maybe on the flip side, if we do have kids, we can go to the other extreme of idolizing them. Right? We can have our worlds revolve around them and see them more as a little God rather than a gift to be stewarded. But we often don't stop and ask, well, how should I view my children and my parenting in light of God's kingdom? The psalmist says, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Right? God loves to see godly parents raising lots of little image bearers that love him. Now, I'm not saying every Christian family should have a large family. Okay? But clearly there might be lots of constraints, whether it's a particular season of life or capacity, parenting capacity or home or lots of things, right? Uh, but it's something you should pray about and work together as a couple on. Right? My question is this, though, friends, at the core, I think the thrust of this passage, do you see children especially if you have kids, your children as a blessing from the Lord. Do you cherish the time you get with them? Do you cherish the time you have instructing them and cultivating them and spending time with them and seeking to bring them up in the admonition of the Lord, even at an early age? Now, I know it's hard work. It is hard work, especially if you're a mom. I get it. My wife were up here. She would tell you. (laughs) They brought many tears. Uh, Parenting is hard work, probably some of the hardest work there is to do. But just because it's hard work doesn't mean it's not worth it. But often in our culture, we trade sleep and time with family for working harder and longer. 
don't we? We no longer maybe view children as a blessing from the Lord, but an inconvenient hurdle that just kind of gets us through this season or gets in the way of us doing maybe what we really want to do. Parents, I encourage you, don't advocate or outsource your parenting. See your children as blessings from the Lord, gifts that need tending and care and feeding and protecting and educating and discipling and one day sending. Friends, your family and how you raise your family preaches. It does. The way you build your house and the decisions that you make as a family of what you say yes to and no to preaches. And there's no shame in living a countercultural life and raising a countercultural family, especially in this city. This is why the psalmist goes on to say he shall not be put to shame when he speaks it with his enemies in the gate. Now, at first, this phrasing might escape us, but in the day and age that this was written, the court of law in many legal cases were settled at the city gate. So, for example, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, Boaz waited by the city gate to settle who would be Ruth's kinsman redeemer. So the psalmist is saying here that a man with many children, particularly sons who are with him, even his old age, and potentially all the feebleness that might come with it, where others, especially maybe his enemies, might be tempted to take advantage of him, he would still be honored and respected by the presence, protection, and testimony of his children. So in short, translating this into today's language, uh, cultivating a godly example of respect and honor in the home will lead to godly examples of respect and honor in public. And so those of you who are older and have grown kids, and maybe even your, like some of your best friends, I know I am so thankful for the relationship I have with my parents now, or my parents are some of my best friends. Right? Man, what a gift of the Lord. Right? There's no greater joy, I know, than to see your children walking with Jesus and making much of Jesus. I know that's many of our prayers. Now, we can't, we're not in control of the outcome of where each of our children go. Like the Lord, that's ultimately in the Lord's hands. The Lord's sovereign in that. But don't forget, friends, he uses means. Proverbs 22, 6, train up the child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Right? God uses the faithful instruction and teaching and parenting and correction and discipline of imperfect parents, I might add, right? as the fertile ground in which our children can grow. And my prayer, as I'm sure all of you that have children, is that they would grow up and experience the grace and love of our Savior. Which brings us to the last point here, the present reality of God's grace. I'm going to close with this. Underpinning this whole psalm, friends, is the grace and provision of God. Uh, ultimately, it is his grace, not our efforts, that establishes our families and watches over our lives. Do we have a responsibility? For sure. But our responsibility is not outside the sovereignty of God. It's because of his grace right, that he's given us a life and breath in our lungs. It's because of his grace that he's provided us food and shelter and a church even. It's because of his grace that we have the minds that he's given us to be able to work and to nurture and love and give glory to him. It's because of his grace that we would even have children that love him. And it's because of his grace that those children will Lord willing have children of their own that will love Jesus. So, friends, don't miss this. It's, it's because of his grace that we can actually ultimately have a relationship with the Father that will last for eternity. You see, if we miss the reality of what this psalm points to, we miss the reality of the gospel. Because it'd be easy for all of us to maybe walk away and think, okay, I just need to make sure the Lord is building my home. Check as just one more thing to do. And although it might be a fair question to ask, our faith and trust, friends, is not in the amount of our faith and trust. We don't ask the question, well, is the Lord building my house 51% of the time? No, that would be ridiculous, right? Our faith and trust is in the Lord, in Jesus' grace. 
And the way that we can ultimately know that we are building, and our, that all of our building and our keeping will not be in vain is trusting in Christ's work on our behalf. I love this, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I know it's a familiar passage, but listen to it in light of these, this psalm. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, in the gospel, you and I were created to be in relationship with our creator. But the Bible tells us that sin severed that relationship. Not only with our first parents, but all the way to today. Not only did our first parents, Adam and Eve, reject the provision and protection of God, but we too have rejected God's rule and reign in our life, in word and thought and in deed. We have chosen to not let the Lord build our homes, and we've sought to build our own lives on our own terms and our own ways. But God sent the ultimate picture of grace. He sent Jesus into the world to reconcile us back to him, to provide a way in you for you and I to know that we can rest in his finished work upon the cross, not ours. You see, friends, we're either living in one of two narratives. Right? Either we believe that life is a self-salvation project, right, where it's all up to us and our work, we believe that salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace to be believed and received, right? not of works, so that no one can boast. So the most important question you and I can ask ourselves this morning, is the Lord really building my house? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins so that you could truly experience the ultimate love and rest of God? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If not, friends, run to him this morning, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. Take comfort in the fact that he is our merciful high priest and will never fail you. And I love this passage because it not only speaks of a present reality, it also speaks, also speaks of a heavenly reality. That those who place their faith and trust in Christ's work on their behalf become part of God's family, God's church, and heirs of all of God's heavenly, the heavenly Father's blessing. Where you can know that the Lord is at work in building and uh, providing for and protecting and keeping you. So as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 11, that those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Love that. So a few questions as we wrap up our time. What narrative are you living in? How might your work and life change if you truly believe that Christ is actively involved in your everyday life? How might the center and axis of your life change if you believe that God wants to use your work and your parenting all of life to build his kingdom and not yours? How would your boldness in evangelism change if you remember that it's not all up to you? How would your sleep and maybe the amount of sleep that you're getting be affected if you knew that despite your effort, God loves you and is sovereignly involved in your everyday life, providing for and protecting you? Even if that means you have to tell your employer, I can't get to this this week. Parents, how might your view of children, the way you parent, maybe the time you're giving in the home front change if you really believe that children aren't an inconvenience to your life, but a blessing and an inheritance to be stewarded from the Lord? I think the temptation for all of us, if we're honest this morning, is to make much of ourselves and little of God, isn't it? And the psalmist is reminding us today afresh that our lives are so much more than building houses and cities and things. 
and families. It's about the glory of God. Encounter to the cultural narrative you and I are bombarded with every day, true rest and security doesn't come from and won't be found in making sure our lives on this earth are well-built and well-protected. Our ultimate rest and contentment and happiness lies in experiencing the rest and love that can only come from remembering that Christ is all that we have and Christ is all that we need. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Amen? Friends, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together, which is, you're going to find the elements in the corners up front. And our participation in the Lord's Supper reminds us of the realities of the gospel that we are swimming in together. And so as we take and eat the bread, we're reminded that Jesus' body was broken on our behalf on the cross so that we could be made whole again. It points to his finished work and not ours. As we take the, and drink the juice together, we're reminded of the blood of our Savior, which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sin and rebellion against him. And the new covenant that he brought about through the work of his death on the cross. So friends, as you partake this morning, thank God. Let this be a celebration. Thank him that he is the Lord and Savior and builder and keeper of your life. Let the elements remind you of Jesus' declaration on the cross that it is finished. And so amidst all the unfinished building and keeping of our lives, remember on the cross that the Lord took care of it all. Right? And those then are, that are found in him will be never be put to shame. So before we participate, I want to encourage you, take time to pray and prepare your heart. Even as I was preparing afresh for this, this week, I was personally convicted of ways that I have just leaned into self-sufficiency in the season and been creeping into my heart and need fresh repentance and faith. Maybe you do too. So take some time to consider where you're at with Jesus this morning. Uh, scripture says to examine ourselves before we come to the table. So first, ask yourself, am I really in the faith? Have I turned over the reins of my heart to the Lord to build my life? Or have I maybe just been inviting him along for the ride, right? asking him to bless my plans? If there's any unconfessed confess sin, take some time to pray. Ask the Lord for forgiveness. Receive his fresh grace and his unending love for you. If there's anything between you and someone else this morning, Scripture says leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. So if you need time to be reconciled with someone this morning, do that before participating at the table. And if you're not a Christian or you're on the fence about Christianity, so glad that you're here. There's no safer place to ask your questions, but I would encourage you, don't participate in the elements, right? This is not meant to be a religious exercise, but a relational one for those who are placing their faith in him. But I would encourage you, take this time to reflect on who and what you're living for. And if you walked in here this morning, not a believer, and you want to give your life to him today, you can do that. You can repent of your sins and trust him beginning today. And if you do that, talk to someone. Grab Ben or Steve or myself, one of the elders. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, but let me pray. And then after that, take some time uh, to just be still before the Lord and prepare your heart and then come forward and participate. So let me pray. Oh, Lord. I know there's probably not a single person in here today that wants to waste their life, myself included. And yet we know that there are so many competing messages we're bombarded with every day. We're tempted to believe maybe the world and all that is in it is worth living for. But Jesus, we thank you that you have sent your son into the world to show us that life in you and with you is what it means to have life that is truly life. Father, would you forgive us for exchanging the truth for a lie 
Forgive us for thinking that maybe we are what we do or what we can accomplish. Father, we know that you are merciful and gracious because you want us to rest, both physically and to find our ultimate rest in you. And so, Jesus, we thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Help us to place the weight of our lives on you, knowing that you are God and we are not. And that at the end of the day, having you is all that we really need. And we pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are his.